You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Jenny, if we haven't met. Um, tonight's scripture passage is Acts 7, 44 through 60. If you would like to take a moment to turn there or find it in your phone, um, I'll be reading from the ESV. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Again, Acts 7, 44 through 60. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And when they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we're continuing to look at the Acts of the Apostles, and 
Um, I usually like to call it the acts of the ascended Lord Jesus, who's ruling through his church, uh, through his apostles, as a witness to his reign. And so uh, the book of Acts is really about two things, the ascension of Christ, which happens in the very first chapter, and then how the church is created to be witnesses to his reign um, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. It's just, it like goes out um, as concentric circles. Um, if you dropped a stone in a pond, it would ripple out. The witness to the reign of Christ goes from Jerusalem. It's actually the last time the witness occurs in Jerusalem is here. And then next week, we're going to go out to Samaria and Judea. Um, but the church, as I said just a moment ago, is supposed to be um, kind of like walking into Chinatown. If you remember the first time I went to Washington, D.C. and went into Chinatown, and I it, I was amazed because all of a sudden all of the stuff around me looked like I was in China. And um, then I went to London and there was one there. And then I went to New York and there was one there. And they all had these same gates when you go in there. And so the church is supposed to be like, okay, you're in a, this is a glimpse of what the reign of Christ looks like when you're in the church. So we're kind of like that in Winston-Salem. And whatever city you're in, we are a different kind of, we're ruled by a different kind of Lord, different kind of king. And so... The church is a witness to the reign of that king. And Stephen is the climactic witness uh, in the city of Jerusalem. God has given them eight chances. He's come eight different times to the rulers of the people of Jerusalem. Every time he's trying to get them to repent. Every time he's out of love for them. Even at the end of this, he still asks that their sins would be forgiven. So God keeps coming to the rulers of Israel and he's offering repentance again and again and again. But this time... For the first time, they actually just put an end to it. They murder him. And so it says they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the, the nature of the witness of Stephen uh, is two things in particular. Number one, he gives this long speech. And in that speech, he particularly highlights the rebellion of God's people. That the people of Israel, of whom he is a part, have always resisted God and have always rebelled against God. And that's one thing the Sanhedrin hates. These, the rulers of Israel cannot stand that he's saying that. So that's the first thing. He's a witness to the rebellion of the human race of which he is a part. And then he also, at the same time, is witnessing to the fact that God keeps coming to rescue us in the middle of our resistance. That although we are running away from God all the time, that God is running after us and that he's faster than us and he will catch us and he will subdue us and he will love us. So first is, uh, first is the, the rebellion. Um, you know, one of the striking things about a, a Christian witness, the way we talk about ourselves, the way we talk about the world, is that we say that we are rebels, that we have committed treason against God. And if you're considering, you know, what Christianity is and whether you are interested in becoming part of that community, this is one of the very hardest things of all. It was the hardest thing probably for me uh, was to believe in the fact that I actually... Uh, was a rebel against God, that I, that I was resisting God. And this is the longest speech in the book of Acts. It's completely off the cuff as well. He didn't prepare the speech, which shows you how completely he had internalized the Old Testament. And the whole speech almost is about the way that Israel keeps rejecting God. So this is very much a, a part of the witness of Scripture. Um, it's actually a unique part, I would say, as far as I know, in literature, of a history of a people where at the heart of that history is we are rebels ourselves. It'd be like if somebody wrote a history of America and they concentrated on the greatest crimes that America has committed. You know, the way we have treated Native Americans, 
slavery, the way we treated women, uh, the way we treated the Japanese uh, during World War II. All these things we've done wrong. Like the whole history would be about these things that we as a people have done wrong. Now, if I read that, I would trust that that is a true history. And that is a true speaker who is writing that history. Because it's not flattery. And I trust the Bible. Because the Bible does not sweep things under the rug at all. All the skeletons come out of the closet. There are no family secrets in the Bible. And so this is one reason you should trust in the scriptures is this very speech that the Bible is relentlessly honest about its own authors. Uh, Whether it's Israel in the Old Testament. I mean, Stephen's speech is simply what one of the prophets would have said. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. It's nothing different. Um, So Israel shows herself constantly to be sinful. Uh, And then if you read the Gospels that were written by the disciples, they show themselves to be utter fools. I mean, imagine writing a history of this church where it's mostly about all the mistakes we've made. That's what the Gospels are. And then in the, book of, uh, in the letters of Paul to his churches, every single one is, um, is making huge mistakes. And the book of Revelation, he, he addresses seven churches, and every time he talks about their, the problems they're having and how much he loves them. It's both. But when Stephen says in verse 51, you are a stiff-necked people, it's, it's a reference to a mule that digs in its heels and bows its neck and will not be allowed to be brought forward. And um, our dog is so anxious and crazy that when I try to take uh, that dog on a run, um, it will like splay itself out, like spread eagle on the ground, even if it's like gravel or something painful. And I have to literally drag uh, Ricky along and I just eventually stop because he's completely so stubborn. And that's like a human being that God is trying to draw to himself. It's just like all fours, everything we can possibly grab a hold of, we try to stop. Which just how, it's amazing how humble he is, the terms upon which he will allow us to come to him. Kicking and screaming. Um, Verse 51, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. And the resistance to the Spirit is just how heartless and how without feeling and callous, especially religious people can be. And um, I've experienced that just in the last few weeks, just people who are very, very uh, devout or pious, um, who claim to be Christian leaders, and just the, the cruelty almost. Uh, I've seen this, you know, in my life as a pastor, a lot of pastors are like that. Uh, a lot of leaders in the church are like that. It's, it's kind of scary. If, if you want to become, you know, devoutly uh, Christian, there's a, lot of da- there's a lot of danger there, because it can lead you into this kind of resistance to the Holy Spirit, For instance, the whole reason that Stephen is on trial is because he was doing great signs and wonders. It said that in chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen did great miracles among the people, full of God's grace and power. So there are people that have these lifelong diseases. There are people who are um, deeply afflicted by mental illness, and now they've been delivered. They're weeping for joy. The Sanhedrin sees that. The Jewish leaders see that happening. And instead of rejoicing... They seize him, this is verse 12 of chapter 6, they bring him before the council, they put him on trial, they say he is dangerous and immoral. I mean, imagine, one of the times Jesus actually gets angry with people is when they see a man with a withered hand, and instead of doing anything to heal him, um, they, they, they just are looking for Jesus to heal him so they can accuse Jesus on the Sabbath. And he gets angry. He says he's grieved at the hardness of their heart, he becomes angry. 
Uh, Because we are uncircumcised in heart, verse 51, which basically means callous. It means it's kind of like when a husband will stonewall their wife or maybe vice versa. I've heard about this happening in marriages where it will last. Some people will do it for like an entire week where they will not speak to their spouse. And this uncircumcised in heart is just like that expressionless, silent, unresponsive payback that human beings generally do to God. Because we are so allergic to the presence of God. This is what the scriptures say about us. I mean, I know that, you know, coming through those doors, when you're out there, you don't hear that stuff. This is really weird. This is very radical presentation of what the human being is like. But that's what the scriptures say over and over and over. It's what Jesus said, which is the main reason I believe it, is because he says it over and over again. I watched um, one of the first episode of The Chosen, the, the latest season. The Chosen is a mini-series that is uh, about the life of Jesus. And this is the third season. They're really good. But my favorite scene of all was the scene where he goes to his hometown and he preaches his first sermon where he actually tells everybody, I am actually the Savior. I'm the Savior of the world. And they do such a good job of depicting this sermon. So he comes into the synagogue. They're all proud of him. This is, this is the town hero. You know, this is our boy. And the rabbi, Benjamin, is so proud of his pupil. And these kids who've played with him their whole life, they're just like, this, we've heard all these great things about you, Jesus, and now we get to see you in action. And so they're ready to hear the sermon. And uh, he, he reads from this passage in Isaiah, which is basically about how um, he has come to liberate us from oppression and sin. And he basically says to them, uh, you need salvation you're resisting God all the time, and I am here to save you. And it just makes you realize how crazy that would be to hear this guy that you knew your whole life say those things. And they do such a, go- a good job of showing the, the townsfolk and their expressions on their face. And there's first confusion, like, what is he talking about? And they start trying to correct him. Surely you didn't mean what you just said. And he's like, no, I did mean that. And then there's enormous discomfort and then contempt and then just rage. It helps you understand why these people are so angry at Stephen. You just see the rage. And they start saying, who do you think you are? We are the chosen people of Israel. And you think that you are here to save us? And it's like the Sanhedrin that are enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That level of anger where you actually physically grind your teeth. So we as citizens of the kingdom have got to be the people in wherever we're placed, in our workplace, in our classrooms, our dorms, um, in our um, apartments, houses, our streets. We as citizens of the kingdom, we are the ones who say to the world, we resist God. We've got big problems. That's one of the things we can do for people is show them that. Where we, we don't advertise our virtue, we repent of our sin in front of people. And that's our witness. That's what Stephen's doing here. That's his witness. It's uncomfortable. It'll make you uncomfortable. It might make them uncomfortable. But that's what we do as citizens of the kingdom. Someone once uh, criticized me for uh, criticizing uh, Christians too much in my sermon. They said, you're always criticizing evangelical Christians, but you never talk about the secular left. Like You don't talk about uh, liberals who don't believe in God and who are doing all these things that are godless. You're always criticizing like our own people. So why don't you, they're the problem, so why don't you go against them and not us? And I 
I say because we're the ones claiming to represent Jesus. They're not saying that they do. We're the ones who are saying, if you look at us, you're going to see what God's like. This is the way God reigns. If you look at what we're doing. And so we have got to be absolutely clear when we are getting that wrong, that that is not what the King of Kings is like. And so we've got to be self-critical. We've got to be critical about our own people, about the church in America. We've got to do that. And we can do that. We can do that because we're so secure that God loves us. The only way you can ever really fully expose who you are and show a lot of vulnerability is if you're very secure that you are loved, that there is no more shame for you, that you are not condemnable, that you are justified, as we sang uh, in that song, you're absolutely justified. Uh, because what Stephen sees, now he's before the highest court of law that he's ever known his whole life. He is standing before the Sanhedrin. These are the moral paragons that he's looked up to his whole life, and yet um, he fears no punishment. Because it says that he looked into heavens, it's like the heavens opened up, and I keep talking about this in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it's like there's this thin membrane between the visible and the invisible. And the invisible is not up there, it's like right here, but I can't see it. The invisible reign of Christ, and all of a sudden the clouds part, and he is aware that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God in verse 55. And when you're standing at the right hand of God, you are standing there, standing to acquit the person, to pardon them, to say not guilty, to say I am with you, I am on your side. And so the reason that Stephen has so much courage to say these things is because he knows that he does not have to cower before these moral authorities, that he sees into a deeper court of law, a higher court of law than anything human. He realizes he is completely acquitted and not guilty. And when we know that, then we can actually say what's going on inside of us. If we don't believe that, we're going to shut down. We're not going to tell anybody anything. But when you see that Jesus at the right hand of God, your face is going to be like an angel, which is what it says about Stephen. His face was like an angel in verse 15 of chapter 6. So that's the first thing. We've got to be a witness to the rebellion of the human race. And that is actually good news. When we tell people that, uh, it's good news. Because we say we're the same way. It's not like an us versus them thing. We're all in this together. We're all stiff-necked. The second thing is, even as we do that, we have got to talk about the rescue. You cannot have one without the other. If you talk about the rebellion and not the rescue, you're going to be in despair. You're going to hate yourself. Um, You're going to always feel awful about yourself. You've got to highlight the rescue. Because it's the one that has the last word. The last word is not the rebellion. The last word is the rescue. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Grace is always more than sin. So verse 44, I find this amazing that he says, that uh, Stephen says that he, God told Moses to make a tent of witness, to witness to his reign for our fathers when they were in the wilderness. This is when the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness for 40 years and they are constantly rebelling against God. If you know anything about the story of Exodus and Numbers, they say things like, it would have been better if we had been back in Egypt serving the Egyptians. We would, we would rather be back in slavery eating the leeks and the potatoes that they gave us than to die out here with you, God, in the wilderness. They say things like that. And then God's response to that is, I want to build a tent for myself right in the middle of all of you, and I want to dwell with you. That's 
That's an amazing willingness to, to be with his people and to rescue his people from their sin. While they are rejecting him, he's saying, I want to live right in your midst. They say, you know, we hate this manna and these quail that you're giving us every day supernaturally. We hate the leadership of Moses. And then God's like, I'm going to lead you by a pillar of fire in the nighttime and a cloud to cover you in the daytime. I'm going to constantly take care of you. You know, over and over and over, they rebel against God and God just keeps rescuing them and coming at them and loving them. Verse 45, it says, God drove out the nations before our fathers. He fought for them. He didn't even make them fight themselves. He fought for them and he loved them all the way to the promised land. So imagine if you had a teenager. Some of you have teenagers. We have teenagers. Imagine if they got really mad at you and they mocked you, which does, will happen if you don't have one yet. That will happen. They will scream at you. They will run up the stairs and they will slam the door. And they'll say something that they would probably regret later. These things happen with teenagers. And imagine that instead of yelling back or threatening punishment, you better get right down here right now or else. And all these things that we do as parents. Imagine if you walked up those stairs and you sat by their door and you just said, I'm always on your side. I'm going to be here right now, however long you need me to be. And just like smothered them with grace. I'm not saying that's what you should always do as a parent, but that would be a lot like what God is doing to the Israelites in the wilderness, just constantly coming to them and sitting there and willing to just be with them as they hate him. Now you might say, well, well, I have done things over and over again that are so awful that that just doesn't apply to me because I, I have committed certain sins that I couldn't even tell you about and surely at some point his patience wears out and his favor wears out and God's like, well, so do you mean like adultery? or sexual abuse, or murder, because those are all things that David did. And in verse 46, it says, David found favor in the sight of God after those things, after the incident with Bathsheba, after Uriah, the murder of Uriah, after all of his shenanigans, all these things he does that are cover-ups, all this incredible evil as the king of God's people, and God still keeps showing favor on David. I mean, why are we so hard on each other? Why are you so hard on people around you, your spouse or your parents or your siblings or your children? Why do we do that? Because we don't believe in the rescue of God. We don't believe in our own resistance to him and we don't believe in his rescue. And we're always punishing ourselves and other people because we don't believe these things. Because we have such high standards that we cannot keep. We hold other people up to, they cannot keep. We forget how much God loves us. We get anxious and we start blaming people. We're always running from him and he's always running after us. Last week I was running around Salem Lake, last Sunday, running around Salem Lake and I don't know what got into me but I saw a jogger ahead of me and I just said to myself, I'm gonna catch that guy. And I don't really know why I decided to do that but he saw me coming um, and he very subtly increased his speed. I could tell that he did. So I very subtly increased my speed. And I got closer and closer. And at some point, I just realized, he just realized it's not, I'm, I'm not going to run away from this guy. So he slowed way down. And I passed him, and I gave him a little nod as I passed him. And, you know, we're always running away, uh, looking over our shoulder, hating the approach of Christ. But when he gets to us, he doesn't, like, do that little head nod and run past us. He comes, and he runs alongside us, and he encourages us, and he loves us. He loves people who hate him. Loves people who hate him. 
There was this uh, incredible commercial last week. I don't know how many of you saw the Super Bowl, but um, we, were, we were watching for the commercials probably as much as the game. Um, and there was one commercial where I was like, whoa, what is going on? And they just started showing black and white photos that were really graphic. And I, I think some of them were actually his pretty famous photos of things that have happened the last few years of just people screaming at each other, hatred all over their face, pointing fingers, um, just kind of murderous hatred. One photo after another, big, graphic, really good photographs. And uh, there was this heavy, percussive music playing in the background, like really angry, and these kind of angry lyrics of some kind that I couldn't quite hear. And I had no idea what this was advertising. And it went on for a while. It was a pretty long commercial. And then all of a sudden the music stops and it's all black and a caption appears. And it just says, Jesus loves the people that you hate. And um, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, who did that? That is such a brilliant way of depicting. That's such a great witness. It's a witness to both of those things that I just talked about. It's a witness to the human rebellious heart, the hateful heart. And it's a witness that Jesus loves those people who we hate. And he loves us. It reminded me of Stephen and how these people, I, I just can imagine these leaders like pointing fingers at him and like raging at him and look, standing over him and their faces just red, blood red. And they're pushing him into the pit. When you stone someone, you didn't like throw pellets at them. You pushed them down into a pit. And then you dropped really big stones. And uh, you can imagine their level, like just the testosterone that was flowing through their bodies, their anger. Maybe even like a superhuman strength because they were enraged. And his body is being crushed down there in that pit. And then the ultimate witness, this is probably one of the most Christ-like moments of anybody in the whole Bible. I mean, there is no better character than Stephen in the whole Bible. Um, and he falls to his knees in verse 60, and he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And that is his Lord praying through him. That's where he's been taken over by Christ. The same Jesus has said while they were crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen calls him the righteous one who we betrayed and murdered. The one who we betrayed, but... Remember, we love these rascals.